This week on Perspective, a vote for Europe's future, with or without Brexit. In about two weeks, voters in 28 countries go to the polls to elect more than 700 members of the European Parliament. And yes, no Brexit yet Britons will be voting too. It's one of the biggest elections in the world, second only to the elections in India, which will also be decided later this month. In the view of some, this is perhaps the most important European election since what's come to be known as the European Project came to life. At the heart of the debate, very different views of just what Europe should be. In recent years, the voices of Marine Le Pen in France, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Matteo Salvini in Italy, for example, have highlighted the strong currents at play across Europe and in modern global politics. The decline of liberal democracy, the rise of populism and nationalism, increasing division, radicalization. This week on the program, a look at the campaign and what it really means for Europe's future. We'll consider the impact of the Brexit mess. We'll hear from voters in London and Paris. And we'll have a perspective from Poland, a country that's one of the biggest financial beneficiaries of the EU. But we're going to begin in Italy, home to the first populist government in Western Europe. Eric Reguli is European Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and he's based in Rome. As you've written, Eric, Brexit has done the European Union a big favor. How would you describe the way it's affected the campaign in Europe itself? Well, I, I actually do think Brexit has done um, Europe a big favor in the sense that the European, the Eurosceptic European countries, and I, Italy, where I live, I'm in Rome right now, uh, would be among them. Greece, to some degree, Austria, Hungary, for sure. They all have big Eurosceptic parties, and they see what's happened in Brexit. Brexit, three years later, has still not happened. The country has ripped itself apart. It's completely divided. Um, it's probably going to result in in the ouster any day now, Prime Minister Theresa May. So these these countries with Eurosceptic leaders or big Eurosceptic parties, they go, you know, that forget it. That's not for us. We're no longer campaigning on trying to leave the European Union or the euro, the, the currency that's used in 19 of the 28 countries. They said, you know, forget it. Um, we're going to have to try to reform Europe from within. Italy has the first populist nationalist government in Western Europe. And um, the deputy prime minister talks about a new European dream, uh, Salvini. What does that, from that sort of Eurosceptic nationalist, populist point of view, what does that dream look like? Oh, that's a great question, Alison. It's so vaguely defined. Um, I mean, I can put a bit of spe specifics on it. What they, what Matteo Salvini, who's the, the leader of the League Party, he's probably, probably the most popular and powerful populist in Europe at the moment, even more so than Marine Le Pen in, in, in France. He wants what he calls a Europe of nations. So he wants he wants a loose grouping. As far as I can tell, he wants uh, sovereign countries that are participate together in a common market only. He doesn't want Brussels telling Italy or any other country what to do. For example, Italy has been battling Brussels. Uh, since this new government got elected last year on on the budget. So the, the European Union in Brussels says uh, European countries can only um, run deficits of less than 3 percent 
and must rein in their their debts. Uh, Italy is blowing all these numbers out of proportion. There's always a fight, and Italy wants its fiscal sovereignty back. The irony is, if it weren't for these rules, Italy probably would be bankrupt now. So that's one area. Another area, quickly, would be uh, asylum policy. Uh, you know, there's no the the Brussels has you know it's an asylum policy. It doesn't really work. Italy wants its own. You know, it doesn't want to have to take migrants. And if it does take migrants, it wants other countries to share the burdens. So they can send, you know, X thousand migrants to France or Germany or Austria. So you, with that in mind, with Sal Salvini in mind, I know you've also spoken recently to Steve Bannon, uh, President Trump's former advisor, and now who's trying to instigate something called the movement, which is, I guess, a broader coalition of uh, like-minded views. How effective has that been more broadly in Europe, do you think? What, Steve Bannon's uh, effort here? Yeah. Um, pretty close to zero. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, why, why is Steve Bannon here? I mean, he got kicked out of the White House. He got kicked out of Breitbart. He's got really nothing to do in the United States. Um, he, he's basically living in Rome at very expensive hotels, which I don't think he's paying for. And uh, so the movement, again, I don't really know what it is. It's it, it's providing data for one for one thing for the for the populist parties, um, informal advice. I mean, he's not a member of any of, of any party. But you know, Allison, why does a guy like Matteo Salvini, who's probably the most the most successful populist on the planet at the moment, why would he need uh, Steve Bannon? He doesn't. You know, also. European law says that that Steve Bannon and whoever his backers are, he won't who he won't say who they are. They cannot fund these populist parties, except in a couple countries. But in most of the EU countries, it's illegal for outsiders, non-citizens of the EU, to give money to to local parties. So I don't think he's having a huge effect here. But having said that. Every time he gives an interview, it's a mob scene, and uh, you know he gets press. So I guess he's raising the, um, in that sense, he's raising the profile of populism in Europe. Given all of that, and and there's been a lot of concern expressed about the rise of populism and nationalism in Europe. Is there sort of a a broader alliance among those who are of the same mind as Salvini, for example? Is he leading something that is bigger than his own political party? Yeah, yes, he is. He, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get a populist, vaguely right-wing, uh, I mean, not all these populist parties are right-wing or extreme right-wing, by the way. Um, um, most are, though. He's trying to get uh, a right-wing grouping alliance in the European Parliament, which has 750-odd MEPs. Um, so he's talking to Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, for example. He'll be talking to Marine Le Pen in France. So he's trying to get them together. Now, why is he trying to do that? Because he wants to get, try to get, in effect, a blocking stake in the European Parliament. What does that mean? In the last election, 2014, the populists and the nationalist parties got about 20% of the vote. If they get north of 30%, they're going to have a block. They're going to deprive this, the the center right and center left parties that have that have that have uh, dominated the EU Parliament since 1979. Um, they're going to the, at 30 percent or more. They're going to be able to. They might be able to stop key legislation. 
They're certainly going to try to stop any additional moves to integration, like you know, a common banking union or euro bonds, common bonds for the for the for the whole market, uh, that sort of thing. And that that is their goal. And you know, they they might be able to do that. Hmm. We'll be watching. Thanks very much for your insight on this, Eric. Thank you very much. Bye bye, Allison. Members of the European Parliament, or MEPs, are elected once every five years. The 751 members meet in Strasbourg, France, the official seat of the European Parliament, although committee meetings and other sessions are held in Brussels. Each of the 28 member countries in the EU have a designated number of seats. Germany holds the greatest number of seats at 96, while Malta, Cyprus, Estonia and Luxembourg hold the fewest seats at six apiece. Six countries, Belgium, France, Ireland, Italy, Poland, and the UK, divide their countries into constituencies and elect an MEP for each. The other 22 countries elect their set number of members. MEPs sit in political groups in the European Parliament. Each group must have at least 25 members and represent 25% of EU member states. There are eight groups in the current Parliament. The European People's Party, the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, the European Conservatives and Reformists, Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, European United Left Nordic Green Left, Greens European Free Alliance, Europe of Freedom and Direct Democracy, Europe of Nations and Freedom, and the non-attached members who don't belong to any of the recognized groups. Definitely the, the election means a lot, given the Brexit and all those things coming up in, into the picture. I think definitely it means a lot. It can change the course, the way uh, the Brexit, uh, Brexit discussions are going ongoing as well. So we don't know how things are going to go, but definitely we are looking forward and uh, um, to see what the results would be actually. I think uh, probably it'd be better if we weren't going into the EU elections and we'd already Brexited. I think it probably is a waste of time, yes. I think we should have got on and, and exited by now. I just think it's pointless and I, I think people will, will probably not want to engage with it, uh, or many people, I can't speak for everyone, I speak for myself, um, I'm probably not going to bother, so I feel many other people will feel the same way. EU elections, I can't answer the question because I don't know the answer. It's such new territory we're in that I don't know what the outcome's going to be. We've got a problem, we have a two-party government, we have a two-party system. Both parties actually want to leave the EU, which means a lot of people who want to remain in the EU have got nobody to vote for. So therefore, there's confusion, and I don't know what's going to happen. What do the EU uh, elections mean to me? Yes, I hope it means the end of Brexit. Have a good day. A broader perspective now on the forces at play in the European election. Rosa Balfour is a senior fellow in the Europe program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She's in Brussels. Watching the Brexit fiasco in the United Kingdom may dissuade some others in Europe from opting out of the European Union completely. But what other lessons should Europe take from that UK experience? 
Yes. Well, the first um, outcome is definitely that many um, anti-EU parties have actually changed um, tactic, and they're now arguing in favour of staying in the European Union, but changing it from within. So there is no imminent risk that other member states will want to leave the European Union. However, there are some risks of fragmentation. Um, the, the, the EU member states have found some unity over uh, Brexit, so they've been united in the ne negotiations with London, but they're not really united on what future shape the EU should take. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of debates going on on this front. And of course, the fact that populists are doing quite well um, in domestic politics is undermining the ability of governments to pursue an ambitious EU agenda. So we're seeing that in policy terms, the EU is really not um, living up to expectations in terms of the big challenges, uh, the US China trade war or other big issues that are taking place. Um, and the risk is, of course, that over the next five-year period after the European Parliament elections, Europe will be going through a rather inwards-looking uh, phase. The different uh, possible uh, scenarios. One is that the EU does pick up in the face of these challenges, and the other that, as a consequence of the European Parliament elections, um, as a consequence of uh, populists playing uh, uh, hardball, um, that Europe is actually weakened within. Even if populists do better in, in the European elections and have a more powerful voice within the EU, they don't necessarily share an, an ideology or a, a particular point of view. So what does that mean for uh, politics and the direction of the European Union? Yes, the most likely um, outcome of the European Parliament elections is that we will have a more divided parliament, but there will still be a pro-European majority. The populists, as you rightly point out, they do not share a single ideology. Um, and in fact, even those who might form the same political group on the right of the European Parliament, even they are, because of their nationalism, are ultimately, hopelessly condemned to be um, to be to have different uh, vested interests. What we are seeing, however, is that they are putting them aside temporarily with the overarching goal of uh, creating uh, confusion and havoc in EU um, politics. So I think that we will see their divisions when it comes to debates about that touch upon their vested interests. And I think money, when the Euro next European Parliament starts talking about its budget, that's where the populist parties are likely to split and divide. I want to talk a little bit about the, the pro-Europe voices um, and the rise of populism and, and, and nationalism um, along with it. Um, are the traditional parties the viable alternative here for people who have become disillusioned with their politics? Well, we have the traditional parties, in particular the European People's Party, which brings together the Christian Democratic families in Europe and the Social Democrats. They are both expected to lose um, some votes. So clearly people do not think that they are providing um, alternative solutions or innovative politics. Other groups, conversely, are growing or are set to grow. For instance, the Greens, which have always done well in European Parliament elections. And there are expectations that the Liberals will do well 
well, um, especially if uh, Macron and the um, En Marche uh, movement joins in with the Liberals um, after the vote. So um, together, those four groups will form a really, a lot, you know, two-thirds of the parliament will be uh, taken up by them. So they will have um, a strong pro-EU uh, policy. But of course, you might find that, in you know, depending on the policy, they might split. So the Greens and the Social Democrats are likely to be more in favour, for instance, of fighting climate change, whereas to the centre-right, they'll be more in favour, for instance, of single market policies, digital single market. So there'll be some, there'll be differences depending on the policies, but altogether, um, they will form a pro-EU majority. What I think the story of the populists is, is telling these parties that they really need to liven up their methodologies, their ways of engaging with citizens, and we're partly seeing that. For instance, Macron carried out the citizens' debate recently. This was in the wake of the Gilets Jaunes movement. And um, so if all this pushes traditional parties to step out of their comfort zone and seek new ways of engaging in politics, I think that actually is a positive outcome um, of a trend which which is um, set. You know, so the populist trend is quite set on anti-establishment, anti-system objectives. Just briefly, before I let you go, some have been watching the politics in Europe, the rise of populism, the rise of nationalism, and suggested that this election for the EU is one of the most significant since the end of the Second World War, even. Is that an overstatement, in your view? Well... I think that's a bit of an overstatement. There's a lot of preoccupation when when things happen um, in Europe and, you know, people see uh, the Gilets Jaunes on the Champs-Élysées and think that Macron is about to fall. This is not the case. Um, European institutions have been resilient. It's true that the EU has been going through, and Europe as a whole, has been going through a decade of crisis, and light is not... Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is not quite evident yet. I think the European Parliament elections will start a period um, of transition, perhaps, um, um, and of uncertainty. But I think there are plenty of constructive forces within the European um, continent working on a pro-European agenda. There are plenty there who can bring in some innovation. Um, so I think this is the beginning of a period um, of, um, of maybe turbulence, but that something positive can come out of it. Thank you very much for your expertise and your insight on this. Thank you very much for having me. Aujourd'hui, toutes les grandes décisions sont prises par la Commission européenne et la seule manière pour nous d'influencer ça, c'est d'avoir des députés européens qui représentent à la fois les intérêts français et qui, qui peuvent représenter nos opinions aux uns et aux autres, qu'on soit de gauche, de droite, d'extrême gauche, d'extrême droite, qu'on soit pro-européen ou anti-européen. Euh, il faut voter, à mon avis, parce que c'est la seule manière d'influencer la Commission européenne. Je pense que l'Union européenne, elle permet une certaine stabilité. On voit actuellement avec le Royaume-Uni que le fait qu'ils sortent du Brexit, ça pose quelques problèmes, et qu'ils sont justement en train de revoir leur jugement. Et je pense que ce serait une bonne chose de rester dans l'Union européenne pour l'instant voir comment celle de l'Angleterre évolue et si jamais c'est bénéfique pour elle, peut-être réfléchir à une sortie de la France, de l'Union Européenne. On ne peut plus être dans son petit coin, c'est pas possible. Non, non, il faut s'unir. Tous les, les pays d'Europe, par contre, on a fait l'Europe trop rapidement. On a pris trop de pays en même temps. Il aurait fallu être structuré, enfin c'est ce qui me semble, il aurait fallu être structuré à une dizaine de pays mais, et après accepter d'autres pays. Mais on a tout fait trop vite.
qu'il faut penser l'Europe de façon différente après la décision de certaines personnes qui ont voté en Grande-Bretagne pour le Brexit. Euh, et donc ça veut dire qu'il y avait quelque chose qui n'allait plus dans, dans l'Europe, notamment aussi le Brexit, mais je pense aussi à la Hongrie et à l'Italie avec la montée des, 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 des votes populistes et aussi en, en Espagne. Euh, effectivement, il faut peut-être repenser les décisions européennes. Euh, avec toutes les guerres qu'il y a eu, euh, les 1914, 1940, tout ça, euh, l'Allemagne était contre la France, la France contre l'Allemagne, euh, enfin tout, tout, beaucoup d'ennuis. Et je veux, je veux, moi, personnellement, j'ai été touché par, par de la famille qui a été euh, pendant la guerre. Euh, j'ai des origines juives, donc euh, je ne veux plus qu'il y ait de problèmes avec la, les guerres, etc. Donc je suis pour l'Europe à 100%. Poland is a big financial beneficiary of membership in the EU. Its economy is thriving and Warsaw is one of the fastest growing metropolitan regions in Europe. The Polish government, now sometimes described as an authoritarian democracy, has had significant differences with the EU. A perspective on the upcoming EU elections now from Poland, Helena Chumalewska-Schleifer is an assistant professor at Kuzminski University and the author of Reshaping Poland's Community After Communism, Ordinary Celebrations. She spoke to us from Warsaw. Poland is sometimes described as having a split personality. On the one hand, a populist, nationalist government, and yet, on the other hand, support for the European Union itself is relatively high. H yeah. How do you explain that? Well, it's a very pragmatic choice. Uh, people, uh, since 2004, since Poland's accession to the EU, have been noticing uh, the huge positive impact uh, of the EU in the country. So one thing are the vast amounts of, of funding that has been flowing into the country since 2004. Poland is the biggest net beneficiary within the EU of, of EU funds. And on the other hand, the opening of the market of, of freedom of movement and of uh, uh, freedom of labor uh, in uh, the entire EU uh, member states uh, has allowed Poles to um, uh, immigrate to other countries uh, for, for jobs. So uh, they, they see that, they see the positive effects in their very daily lives, and, and that's families uh, all over. Yet at the same time, uh, the leader of the government and others obviously in, in Europe too, one of their key concerns heading into this election, one of the key issues, is migration. Yes, um, but it is a very different type of migration. This is the uh, fear of uh, illegal immigrants who are posing uh, as refugees. This was uh, a huge issue during the 2015 parliamentary elections, and, and this uh, instilled fear helped uh, the, the current government uh, significantly to win the elections. Uh, as far as I know, uh, Poland uh, accepted uh, zero refugees um, among other, uh, from, uh, in, co in comparison to other EU states. Tell me a bit about Euroscepticism within Poland and what, what shape that is taking. It's getting a lot of media attention, uh, but uh, around 90 percent, it's like 87, 88 percent polls uh, claim that they are supporters of the EU. And this has been a very steady number 
at least uh, for the last five years. And, and that support has been even growing from around 84 to now 87, 88%. Uh, so, uh, of course, there are fringe groups, and you can see such fringe, fringe groups all around Europe that are Eurosceptic and uh, are, are claiming that more national sovereignty is, is necessary. Uh, but in the case of Poland, uh, the, the benefits of the EU are too tangible for too many people on a very daily basis uh, for people to uh, easily reject that in favor of, of, of nationalism. There seems to be um, an accepted view, even among Eurosceptics across Europe now, that the idea is to reform the European Union from within. What would that look like from Poland's point of view? What, what would that ideally be? Well, that's a very good question. I don't think there's honestly any solid idea of how this reform should be done. The you know, basic principle is more national sovereignty, so less EU-centric uh, regulations um, and more power to the people in, in particular nation states. Uh, but so far, this uh, has not been translating into anything um, tangible. Um, However, at the same time, one can notice that the EU has been struggling with um, uh, regulations that have not received a popular mandate in uh, the member states. Uh, so there are reasons to be asking questions how this EU regulation should be done to make it acceptable to uh, people within the member states. So this is a big issue that should be discussed. Uh, at the same time, Eurosceptics are kind of uh, using this uh, this argument to to gain votes uh, because um, arguments of, of national sovereignty always gain some ground. Um, but uh, it's for now it, it seems more of a kind of cynical game for the elections than anything else. For many, the very idea of the European Union was based on the idea of a liberal democracy, and and you've suggested that that is perhaps a dated idea. Tell me what you mean. Some voices, uh, especially among young people, have been raised that, that the liberal model is uh, no longer uh, a functional one. And uh, this is also why you can see the kind of illiberal democracy model uh, being implemented uh, quite successfully, unfortunately, in Hungary. Um, so uh, because we are going to post the end of history, uh, that, that was the... Um, major idea back in the 1990s, the beginning of the 2000s. Now you can see that there are other models of a functioning society that are not liberal democracies. And uh, for people who value freedom, like a very kind of classic idea of freedom, this is a very big threat. But for, for people who are not really that interested in, in uh, um, speaking to power and, and, and controlling power because they are more concerned about just leading their lives. Um, this is not such a big issue. So it's this kind of huge uh, debate over how society should look like uh, that has caused liberalism uh, to, to, to lose its, its kind of cool factor. At the same time, the, the leaders... Uh, of the EU uh, have done really little to, to, to make that idea alive again. It, the, 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 the structure of the EU makes the 
um, makes its leaders uh, feel very detached from, from, from people on the ground. So this is a problem of kind of making the idea of liberalism uh, a valid uh, a valid idea worth fighting for. Helena, thank you very much for your insight and your perspective on this. Thank you. In a recent Eurobarometer poll, 48% of Europeans said they don't trust the EU, while 42% of them do. The highest levels of trust were in Lithuania, Denmark, and Sweden. The lowest levels of trust were in Greece, the United Kingdom, and the Czech Republic. 49% of EU citizens agree their voice counts in the EU, and 47% disagree. It is the first time since 2004 that a majority of Europeans believe their voice counts in the EU. Immigration is the main concern among EU citizens. Terrorism is next, followed by the state of EU member finances. 83% of EU citizens support the free movement to live, work, study, and do business anywhere in the EU. 69% are in favor of a common European policy on migration. 62% support a European economic and monetary union with one single currency, the euro. The survey was conducted between November 8th and 22nd, 2018. 27,424 people were interviewed in 28 EU member countries. And that's our program for this week and for this season. If you'd like to take another look at any of the interviews in the program or at any of our previous programs, they're all available on our webpage at cpac.ca slash perspective. And now you can also take the program with you. All of our programs are available as a podcast. You can find links to where to listen on our webpage. I'm Alison Smith. Thanks for watching.